So we've been working for several years on methods for predicting protein structure from amino acid sequence. DeepMind has been doing great work on this. And basically, I think we're people who actually make some of their ideas available to the world because we in court, we basically try and build on what they do. You have an amino acid sequence, you predict the structure. What we actually predict is distance map, distances between all these different pairs of residues. And what we can then do in, in the same way that if you have a uh, deep network that recognizes images of cats on the internet, that you can feed it noise and then optimize the noise so that the network really thinks it's a cat it's looking at. That way you can use to hallucinate brand new images of cats. Well, we can use the same idea with proteins to start off with random sequences, predict their structures. They don't look like proteins, but then we can optimize the sequence such that the network really thinks it's a protein. In this session, David Baker discusses protein-based assemblies and molecular machines. David Baker is the director of the Institute for Protein Design at the University of Washington. His research group is focused on the design of macromolecular structures and functions. He presents on breakthrough advancements in de novo protein design. In a nutshell, deep learning pattern recognition hallucinates the desired protein structure and generates the correct peptide sequence for accurate folding. This cuts work in the lab and comes with a variety of applications. One present interest is designing protein assemblies for molecular machines that can perform controlled work. Longer-term applications include anything from universal vaccines to a larger alphabet of novel amino acids to advanced drug delivery, smart therapeutics, and next-generation materials. This meeting is part of the Molecular Machines Group. In the show notes, you find info for how to find the written seminar summary to this talk. Okay, so the way that we've been thinking about protein design for, for many years, actually up until very recently, is, is really based on the principle that the folded states of proteins are likely global energy minima for their sequences. So each protein has a unique amino acid sequence, and that amino acid sequence will have a lowest free energy state, which depends on that sequence. So in this picture, if you're trying to predict the structure of a protein from its sequence, you need some way of computing energies of all the of interatomic interactions. You need to sample through all the different possible structures, and you search for the one that has the lowest. So in this talk, though, I'm not going to be talking about protein structure prediction. I'm going to be talking about protein design. So we're making up brand new sequences to, that will fold up into new structures. And here we do the opposite. You, you make up your structure somehow, and I'll give you lots of examples of that. You make up your backbone, and then you have to find an amino acid sequence whose lowest energy state is that backbone. So over the years, we've been developing a program called Rosetta. So what this does is it calculates the energies of any particular configuration of a protein, and it samples through the space of possible structures and the space of possible sequences. And that's how we've been approaching protein structure prediction and protein design. Deep learning is infiltrating quickly. And so we are starting to use deep learning for both of these problems. I can comment on that if there's interest. So the problem that, that we've really been focusing on for the last five or more years is, is the problem of building proteins completely from first principles. So sequence space is really big. Even if you just use the 20 naturally occurring amino acids, there are, for 100 residue protein, you have an astronomical number of possible sequences. And the number of proteins which have existed on Earth is just a tiny fraction of this. So there's this enormous space of possible proteins that evolution hasn't explored because of this evolution proceeds incrementally. And almost all protein engineering has consisted of, of making small changes to proteins which already exist. 
which we affectionately refer to as a Neanderthal protein design. And what we're doing is trying to build proteins completely from scratch that are unrelated to any proteins of known structure. So we've been doing a lot of this over the last five years. So for the last year, obviously, we have been, like the rest of the world, very preoccupied with the coronavirus. And we used this sort of de novo protein design to design brand new proteins um, that block the virus from entering cells, that's antivirals, that sense the virus, it's diagnostics, and induce the immune response against the virus. Um, so as you, the coronavirus gets into cells by way of this ACE2 receptor protein, there's a classic protein design problem. You're given the structure of a target, like the spike protein of the coronavirus, and the t- challenge is to design proteins which bind to it. So here we generated in silico very large numbers of virtual protein structures and, and then dock them against the surface and designed the interface for really high affinity interactions. And these are some of the solutions that came out from this. And they're remarkable proteins. We've made them in the lab. This one is only 55 amino acids, so it's very short for a naturally occurring protein. It's rock stable. It doesn't melt. And then, and then of course, there's a question of, did this calculation actually get the answer right for the right reason? And so what we did was to solve the structure of how this protein actually binds to the coronavirus by cryo-EM in collaboration with collaborators here at UW. And so this is the spike trimer, and this little thing is our designed protein. And so one of these binds to each RBD on the spike. And we can now compare this to the model that we had made with Rosetta when we were designing it. Remember, I told you we were making up a protein that would, designing a protein that would bind tightly. And what's really quite remarkable is that the structure of the of the design protein is nearly identical to the actual experimental structure. So in this case, the sequence we designed really folds up to exactly the structure we wanted. And beyond that, it actually um, makes the almost exactly the interactions that we were aiming for with the target with the coronavirus, which is down here. So the methods are good on a favorable day to actually design a sequence completely from scratch that folds up to a new structure very precisely that binds a target in exactly the way you've designed. And we have been using this procedure to make small proteins like this that bind to many protein uh, proteins um, on the surface of cells, trying to make new types of, of signaling-related therapeutic proteins. So I'm going to skip through all of this data, except that just basically shows that these proteins actually do work therapeutically. They prevent animals from, from getting sick from the virus. So there's all these escape variants that people are worried about now. But anyway, we can make versions of these that, that are trivalent, that match the three RBDs on the spike. And these versions neutralize all of the, um, all of the variant virus, South Africa, UK, Brazil. And so we're pretty excited about these and we can make them in large amounts in bacteria. And they're headed for clinical trials, which is cool. These are just completely computer generated proteins. So that's the antiviral. And maybe I'll, so the, this is now maybe a little bit more what you're interested in. This is like design of a molecular device. So we wanted to use this for sensing. And so the idea was we could design a system which had two states and th- th- there'd be this off state and an on state. And th- these two would be in, in thermodynamic equilibrium. And the presence of the virus would pull the equilibrium to the on state. And, and so when this thing opens up, it allows reconstitution of an enzyme called luciferase, which generates light. And this works really well. So if you take this molecular device and you add, it, it doesn't um, emit light, but you add 
the, the virus or the RBD or the spike, and you get this rapid increase in, in luminescence. So we can design these multi-state devices that are emit light in one state. We've used this to make, basically, we use this method to make devices that sense a, a wide variety of, of different compounds. And for example, this is troponin, which is involved in heart attacks. This is botulinum toxin. And in each case, we have, we take all these sensors, we add the compound, only the sensor that was designed to bind to example for botulinum toxin binds to botulinum toxin. And on the vaccine side, we've been designing methods for making self-assembling nanomaterials. This was one of the very first examples where we take a protein with uh, with five-fold symmetry and one with three-fold symmetry, and we design interfaces between them such that the five-fold and the three-fold sit on the five-fold and and three-fold axes of an icosahedron. And using this approach, we've been able to make many different types of very um, homogeneous nanoparticles. So you make the two proteins, mix them together, and they form these beautiful assemblies. And so my colleague, Neil King, has been making vaccines out of these by putting the RBD on the nanoparticle. And these turn out to be extremely potent vaccines. They're in clinical trials now, and they seem to be considerably more potent than what's in the mRNA vaccines. So I'll give you now a few examples, and then I'm going to get to molecular machines, which is what I'll spend most of my time on. This week's issue of Science has another cool example of a design nanostructure. So what we realized is that for these symmetric materials, the basic principle is we match axes of symmetry of the protein building block with a point group or space group symmetry operators. And so in this case, we have a pentamer that sits on the five-fold axis of an icosahedron. And on the two-fold axis, we place antibodies. And the, the nice thing about antibodies is that they, people made antibodies to just about anything, everything. And so by, by using the antibody two-fold axis, we basically have the, we, the, 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 it's the constant part of antibodies have a constant part and the variable part is what gives them all their different binding activities. And we, the constant part essentially becomes structural part of the nanoparticle. So the point of this was we could really unite form and function because we could use the antibody itself as a structural building block of the material and then have the sort of the, the business ends open for interacting with, with the target. And we made things with many different symmetries. So here's a dihedral version with two antibodies. Here's a, this one I think is, is I can't see whether it's cubic or tetrahedral. So you make different, by, by changing the arrangement of these arms and how they interact with the antibody, we could make things that form different types of uh, nanomaterials. And when I pay uh, the protein version of med semen cell work with DNA. That's right. It's, it's exactly that. But a lot of what we've done here is just, it's, it's following in Ned's footsteps, but with proteins. Exactly. And then what's interesting, the nice thing about proteins, they have all these functions. So when we assemble antibodies into these nano cages, they have all sorts of new biological activities. Okay. So here, here's another example of design nanomaterial. We've taken two protein building blocks, one that has D3 symmetry, one that has D2 symmetry and designed interactions between them that drive formation that are predicted to drive formation of a hexagonal lattice. And what's really cool is when you mix these two proteins together, you get this really extensive, very regular hexagonal lattice. And this is electrom- electromicograph. And if you look at it, if you average, you, you could actually, it's quite close to the design model. So if you're ever in need of protein chain mail, let me know. What we've been doing with this is attaching binding domains for cell surface receptors. So we get the cells to undergo all sorts of interesting transitions. But obviously one idea is self-assembling circuitry. And I know this is this has been a theme with the Foresight Institute for a long time. A lot of manufacturing is top down. 
And here we can proceed bottom up because everything I've shown you, those nano nano cages of all the different shorts and these kind of hexagonal lattices, these aren't patterned from the top down. These are made by programming very specific interactions between atoms. We can actually use these kind of devices I described earlier to do calculations on the surface of cells. And, and so one of the challenges in cancer therapy is, could you have little machines that go in and kill the tumor cells, but leave normal cells fine, uh, untouched? And that's a hard problem because cancer cells don't often differ very much from normal cells. But if you could do calculations in the body on the surface of cells, then you could make more subtle discriminations. So here, we're, this is a diagram of how, how uh, we discriminate cells that do and logic on the surface of cells. So recognize cell, discriminate cells that have two markers on their surface opposed to just one or the other. And this really works. I don't think I'll take you through the details, but we can actually do one A and B, not C logic. So the basic way, okay, roughly speaking, how this works is we have a closed one component, which is in a closed state. If another component gets brought to it, it opens it up and we get a signal, which in this case, CAR T cells can use to kill the cells. But then we can also have a third component that we can target that gets targeted. There's a third marker present, say a healthy cell marker present on the cells, and that shuts down this whole thing. And so you, you turn it off. So you only get response on the cells that have markers one and two, but not markers three. So in terms of building devices, one of the really interesting types of proteins in biology are, are channels, things that allow ions to go through. So of course, we've been interested in building those from scratch. So here we have, here are crystal structures of different types of cylindrical pores we've developed. And we can actually incorporate these into uh, membranes and when we do, it turns out they are very specific channels. So this one, for example, is a specific potassium channel. So what's kind of interesting about this is people have been arguing about why potassium channels in nature are specific for potassium for a long time. And so a lot of biology is descriptive. You observe things, then you try and build up explanations for it. But here we can just prove by construction. And so here we just, we built something from fairly simple principles and end up with a fairly specific potassium channel. And we've also designed larger pores here that allow larger molecules to go. So what I've described so far are, are helical transmembrane proteins that have rings of alpha helices. But some of the really interesting transmembrane proteins that are, for example, used in single molecule DNA sequencing are beta barrels and assume the membrane. And we've recently under, learned how to design these proteins from first principles. And so now we are designing a series of proteins that look like this with larger and larger pores in that we think we'll be able to functionalize for all kinds of molecular filtration processes as a, a, and in addition, more sort of new approaches to single molecule analysis, because you can look at it the way, the same way that single molecule DNA sequencing works is you'll look at changes in conductance as things go through the pores. Um, we have a game that's an adjunct to what we do, where just people in the, the general public can go in and design proteins and they can pull the proteins around as illustrated here. You can change the amino acid as sequence. And we've been, been testing a lot of the designs in the lab and getting a lot of interesting ideas from all the very smart people out there who aren't professional scientists. Okay, so I'm going to go into a little more detail here. This is now actually our steps towards designing molecular machines. And this is the work of a super talented postdoc in the group, Alexey Corbet. And so his idea was to design machines out of basically rings and axles and try and assemble rotary systems at the protein level. So this is at the mechanical level. He's trying to assemble things that have uh, kind of an end, uh, a cap on the end. Here's a here's an axle. Um, and then here's a rotor that spins on the axle. And so the basic idea is to design these parts, the rings and the axles, then assemble the ring on the axle 
and then incorporate hydro a chemical reaction at this interface to actually drive rotation. And I'll show you where he is on this. Okay, so the first class of materials are these axles, which are basically rods that, that generally have something that we built, that Alexei's built something on the end to hold the ring on. And these are different types of constructions. These are electron uh, density maps, and he's got quite a few different shapes. And What's interesting is that they have they have different symmetries, and and so this matching or mismatching of symmetry will be an interesting thing as I go through. Um, and he can extend these to make it fall easier to follow by imaging. So those are the rods, and then here's the rings. And we again, he has got quite a few different flavors of rings. These are all like everything in my talk so far. These are all completely de novo designed proteins. So we've got these rings that are structurally validated, these rods that are structurally validated, and now. The, here's just some more structures of, of the rings, just so you can see what the rings and rods, these are the ones that he has the highest resolution structures of. So you can see we want to put these various types of rings on these different types of rods. And, and I actually thought that was going to be pretty hard, but it turned out that Alexei was able to, to thread the rings on the axles pretty straightforwardly by, by doing some primarily incorporating electrostatics between the ring and the axle. And, and we can play tricks like using pH or disulfide reduction to actually assemble and trap the rings around the rod. So these are some of the systems that Alexei's made now. There are ones where the symmetry matches. So both the the axle and the rotor have C3 symmetry. And then there are others where the symmetries don't match at all. So the axle, for example, here has D3 symmetry, but the rotor has C5 symmetry. And what you see here are actually cryo-EM maps of the rings, the rotor, the rings assembled on the axle. He's done is to calculate the energy lands on in Rosetta basically we're doing that there's one degree of freedom as the, the, the ring rotates. And you can see the landscapes look really different. As you might expect, when there's symmetry matched, you have three pronounced minima because there should be three rotationally identical states. Whereas when you have symmetry mismatches, for example, D8 on C4 or D3 on C5, you get much more rugged landscapes. And so by, <coughs> by cryo-EM, Alexei has actually solved different states of, of this system, and you're, you can see them here. So they are, here's, here the, what we can distinguish them because the, the ro there are two rings that are mounted on, on, on the ring, and they have these, these things emanating from them. So you can see here they're more eclipsed, and here they're more staggered. And, and it's kind of neat, they correlate to minima in this rotational energy landscape that Alexei has masked out. So we can design these systems that undergo that have multiple rotational states. So now the question is, can we get them to undergo directed motion? So the way that Alexi has approached this is to build in catalytic sites. Many years ago, we started doing enzyme design with Ken Hauk, who I was happy to see here. And so we've been, this is a reaction that Ken will recognize, the retroaldase reaction. We've put, we've put uh, a very simple site in it, this interface between the ring and the rotor. And what we, what we know at this stage is that the, the, this is an active enzyme. So the enzyme turns over and we can also chemically modify this site with different chemicals that are like suicide substrates. Here's a picture of how the substrate fits into this binding site so that we, we get enzymatic activity. And so obviously what we want to know is what happens when we add the substrate. So we're collaborating with Zev Bryant's group at Stanford. They get these very tantalizing single, they basically put a gold bead on the end. And of course, what we want to see is a rotational motion. And so this is angular motion over time, but there's a serious data selection bias here. So we don't really have definitive data yet on whether we have 
uh, one uh, sort of unidirectional rotation, but we're working hard on that. These are just different trajectories. Zeb's group is getting in their single molecule experiments. That's pretty much where we are now with with the design of these rotational systems. I should say we're also designing systems. We've designed a variety of protein one-dimensional fibers using the same self-assembly systems. And we're now using similar principles to try and design walkers that walk along the fibers. That's probably a good place for me to start. I have a little bit of, uh, on on deep learning as opposed to as applied to protein design, but maybe that's, that may be of less interest here. So just to summarize, I think we understand a lot about protein folding and assembly. And now we can really start building a whole new world of, of functional proteins, which is very exciting. And just to quickly acknowledge the people who did the work, Longjin and Brian did the design of those, of the mini proteins that block coronavirus. We have a lot of collaborators for all the animal data, the molecular devices that sense the virus, this work about Bredo and Andy, the, the self-assembling nano cages, those antibody nano cages, Robbie Devine's work, the, that two-dimensional sheet designed by Ariel Ben Sassen, the membrane proteins that the, the synthetic potassium channel, work of Chun Fu and Pei Long, and Anastasia designed the beta barrel. The systems were doing logic inside cells, work by Mark and Scott. And Jillian folded is the work of Brian Kovnik and a number of other people really all around the world now. And Alexi Corbet is really the, the genius behind the rotary motor stuff. And I didn't really talk about the, the protein hallucination. So why don't, we, why don't we go to discussion mode here? We do have a few questions. Let's see. We have Queer on and Queer maybe say one or two words about you and then we'll move on. Okay. I can also talk for two minutes at some point about the deep learning stuff that people want to hear. Oh, I'm sure they want to hear about that. Yeah, I'm Crean. I'm a longtime foresight uh, person and worked in nanotechnology and acquired from three years ago. And uh, lovely, beautiful work. And then I knew Ned Seaman and all those guys back in the day. Anyway, I'd like to know maybe one level down, if you don't mind, the like under the hood of some of your modeling, to what degree is it molecular mechanics? To what degree... Is it electronic structure? All the complicated stuff, like what about the water? Yeah. You know, what about the reactions? Is it just shapes? Is it more than that? Or is it all like machine learned concepts where you don't have to worry about physics? Yeah, it's a really good question. So it's basically molecular mechanics with basically the, the main difference between the Rosetta force field and a traditional molecular mechanics force field is that we treat the hydrogen bonding orientation dependence explicitly. Because you need these hydrogen bonds give you a lot of the precision and the orientation control. And when you have two surfaces coming together, you have to make all the hydrogen bonds, these, the, the, those groups making interactions with water before. But the functional form, it's basically largely pairwise additive sum over atom-atom interactions, the Rosetta force field. Wait a second. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. But that's not going to make a sodium channel or a motor, right? There's more electronics. Yes. Yes, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And in the, and for example, the enzyme work we did with with Ken obviously gets clearly gets into quantum mechanics. But there is an issue of control and what control we have and what control we don't have. So for the potassium channel, for example, we designed things. We designed structures using this this force field I described that had a, a cylindrical aperture that was about the right size for potassium channel passage. But we did not explicitly model before the fact, the, the dynamics of potassium traversal. Likewise, in the molecular machines, those were rotary machines. So it's a sort of a combination of the sort of atomic level design and then shape reasoning, right? So Alexi designed the rings and the rods, but in terms of precise modeling of, and I, we had these after the fact energy landscapes. And then I showed you, we designed catalytic sites 
in there, but we're not computing in advance what the, we're not choosing the, the catalytic site based on what would maximally power rotation. It's much more heuristic than that. We put it at, at the binding site. So there's a combination of sort of real atomic detail at the base design with sort of hypothesis, build, design, build, test at the, the more meta level. Because these are calculations just aren't accurate enough at this point to to work out exactly how to design this molecular, you know, rotary machine. Okay, one last question, follow-up, is that this is beautiful, what you've described, this sort of multi-level analysis with molecular mechanics at one level and kind of human heuristics at the other, other level. Tell me a little bit, if you will, about the feedback that's happening. Like, presumably, the mechanics are informing your heuristics, and then maybe your heuristics inform the mechanics. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of feedback. In the sense, my talk was probably the most misleading thing you've ever heard, because I showed you all these beautiful things that work. But 95% of what we make doesn't work. There's a lot of different failure modes. So basically, what we're doing is we're doing these design calculations. We get out a protein structure, which has a particular amino acid, designed amino acid sequence. We make a synthetic gene that encodes that amino acid sequence. We put it into bacteria. The bacteria make the protein. And some reasonable fraction of the time, they simply don't want to make the protein at all. So there's no protein made. Other times they make the protein, but it just turns into gook at the bottom of the tube. And uh, other times it makes a perfectly well-behaved protein, but it doesn't do what we want. So we get a lot of feedback or we are getting a lot of data back on what works and what doesn't. There's definitely been a lot of iteration. So we can go back to the force field, look at what, try to figure out what's wrong, improve the parameterization and so forth. Also, our understanding of how to approach problems is evolving as well. It's it re- really what you described is exactly it, this very detailed physical model with heuristics sitting on top of it. Like I said, we're collecting a lot of data. And so there's a really interesting opportunity to use ML. Basically, the, pre- the prelude to this is, you know, structure prediction is a big industry in my group. So we've been working for several years on methods for um, predicting protein structure from amino acid sequence. And like everybody have been, DeepMind has been doing great work on this. And basically, I think we're people who actually make some of their ideas available to the world because we in court, we basically try and build on what they do. Okay, so I'll, I'll talk about three, very briefly, three, basically this idea of deep network hallucinating. Okay, so here's protein structure prediction. You have an amino acid sequence, you predict the structure, you get some kind of, what we actually predict is in, in, in this instantation is a distance map, distances between all these different pairs of residues. And what we can then do in, in the same way that if you have a, uh, a deep network that recognizes images of cats on the internet, that you can feed it noise and then optimize the noise so that the network really thinks it's a cat it's looking at. That way you can use to hallucinate brand new images of cats. Well, we can use the same idea with proteins. So start off with random sequences, predict their structures. They don't look like proteins, but then we can optimize the sequence such that the network really thinks it's a protein. And so... This is what a, this is a residue by residue contact map. And if we do this optimization process at the end of the day, we get these very featured contact maps. So this is residue by residue and you get a black dot if those two residues are close in contact. And these are, are, these correspond to protein structures. And when we do this, starting from different random seeds, number of seeds, we get lots and lots of things out, lots and lots of proteins out. They look like proteins. They're not related to any naturally occurring protein. And Rosetta, which in this molecular mechanics model, predicts that they actually fold up to the hallucinated structure. We've made a whole bunch of these, and they actually fold in the lab. And we've, we've solved structures now of three of them. And actually, the, the se- hallucinated sequences fold to the hallucinated structures, which is pretty neat. Um, one of the things that this enables is the shortcoming with our sort of energy physically-based method for protein design 
is when we were optimizing the sequences, we were optimizing for trying to minimize the energy of find the lowest energy sequence for a structure. But there could have been off target structures that were competing that we didn't know about till the end of the day when we tried to search the landscape. But with this approach I'm describing, we can actually explicitly maximize the probability of the desired structure as opposed to other possible structures, because we're essentially using the network to predict a probability distribution over all possible structures. Uh, what was the difference that took you from the first state to the second state? Yeah, so that's a good question. So in this molecular mechanics model, you have the interactions between atoms and it's very nearsighted, right? It just sees the structure that you have at at, at the, the constellation of atoms you have at any given point. So if you're trying to find, optimize the sequence to have, a, to find the very low energy sequence, you're doing this combinatorial search in sequence space, trying to get very low energy interactions. The network instead is reasoning over the probability distributions of distances between all pairs of residues. So as you change the sequence, it's updating all those uh, probability distributions. The deep learning thing essentially knows about the partition function implicitly when it's doing its probability estimation. Okay, so the last thing, and then I'm going to shut up, is we can start designing things that have function by constraining parts of the protein to have shapes that are relevant for protein function. And just to give you one example, so here's a big protein that's part of the the complement cascade is called. It's this big protein. It's got this business end down here in green, which binds target here. What we can do is take this green part out, say we want a sequence of protein that sequence that folds up to a protein that has this structure. We want everything else to be free. And then the network will just hallucinate different proteins that have this region. And we can do the same thing like with an enzyme active site. We can say, okay, we want this part to be fixed and then the rest of it can be whatever the network thinks is best. It's like fixing the cat's ears and then asking the network to come up with the rest of a cat that would have those ears. Um, and uh, yeah, so this has been the work of really talented people who are listed here. Yeah, so that's a, that's the deep learning for sort of new protein design. And then there's also the very exciting area. We're generating all this data from all of our failures and using that to iteratively improve the model. Now, so there's there's now this, you can totally appreciate the, the issue though. So I, what I always thought we were going to be doing is we really collecting this data to improve the physical model, the parameters, the functional forms. But now on these deep learning models, there are no functional forms and there's millions of parameters and they work. But it's, and, and I say we're at this stage now where there's this tension between the deep learning models in my group and development and then Rosetta. And it's not, and right now we're going back and forth, but it's hard for me to predict exactly how that's going to evolve. It's going to be very interesting. Oh, I see a question. Hi, David. This is Turk from NYU. Uh, David, back to that rotary machine, which I found absolutely cool. Reminds me a little bit of T. Ross Kelly's chemically powered rotor. I don't know whether yeah. you can across that. So how is yours powered exactly? Uh, if I understand this correctly, this is a, a retro-aldo reaction, right? Which should have a positive delta H. Is this purely entropically driven or what is the power stroke in this machine? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And so what I, what I can say at this point is what we can do is we can assemble these systems and they clearly are undergoing rotational diffusion, but we have not convincingly demonstrated directed motion. This comes back to the previous comment. So we are still trying to characterize, you can imagine it's a bit of a tricky problem. You need to do single molecule fluorescence or some other measurements to see. So basically we've been faced actually for over a year now with just technical problems and how to really monitor what's going on. So the idea ultimately would be some sort of Brownian ratchet, right? That the binding of the substrate changes the energy landscape. And then there's actually, after the hydrolysis, you remain with the product bound, then that comes off. So the hope is that we can deform the energy, the rotational energy landscape in such a way as to get directed motion. 
but I, we have not convincingly demonstrated that now. And actually, if anybody has ideas about how to characterize these systems experimentally, we need help. It would be really cool to run it through some form of decarboxylation by making a gas or some something along the lines. Of. So I think that was the only question with a, with a hand up. So Debbie, you can now go into the into the chain. Sorry to have, have cut you off. With yeah. The so three, as far as three D porous materials, we're working now. So those arrays get to be tens of microns long. I think they would get bigger at some point. You start using up all the protein. We actually now can design three dimensional crystals. And, and we actually have some been designing hydrogels that look like non-Newtonian fluids. It's very interesting. So I would say there's not really a limit on the size. It's these, these are all symmetric systems. It's really just, an, it's, they're limited by the amount of material that you produce. And then Tad's got his hand up. Hi, hi David. I enjoyed this discussion. So I have a couple of questions on the protein logic that yeah. you described. And so first I'm wondering was sort of what's the limit on the number and the accuracy of the Boolean operations that these devices can perform on the surface of a cell. In particular, if you start having a lot of logic you'd like to do, do the devices get in each other's way? So you have to space them apart and then maybe there's errors in what they implement. And the second piece of my question, I was wondering whether you can include delays in these this logic so that you could detect there's a receptor one that happens and then a little bit later it's number two as opposed to two in the order of two and one. So can there be delays in that? It's a little bit more complicated than just blowing light. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I would say this is a rapidly evolving area. And I think there are issues about crowding that would come up. The way that we're doing, the, targeting the large logic to specific cells is through domains that bind to uh, proteins that are expressed on the surface of those cells. And we need those to be present at a at a high enough level. So right now we're trying to optimize those sorts of things. We're also designing synthetic receptor systems so that you can control cells from the outside. And, and there you can get delays. We're building integrating devices that sit inside the cell that would sense the activation of multiple different receptors. And so that's the way that we're trying to get at timing more from the cell, trying to put these design devices into cells. Okay, thanks. Yeah. How would you, what's the picture of going from machines to function? So basically my experience has been whenever you can achieve a real sort of breakthrough in technology, there's always applications that you can't anticipate. Crazy things you could imagine with a rotary machine would be like cleaning up amyloid fibrils and neurodegenerative disease, because basically if you had that, there are rotary systems in biology that untangled DNA, for example, but we have, we really haven't gone delved in that much. Chaperone and nascent protein interactions. We, we haven't really looked at that. We're really focused on de novo protein design. And most of the proteins that I described, I'd say essentially all of them fold spontaneously. So that hasn't been so much of an issue. Um, Kai Ken, thanks for the nice comments. A lot of the failures are due to aggregation, I would say, because a lot of these systems, they interact by, us, by some hydrophobic interactions. And so those can also lead to aggregation. So how does the design space work for flexible structures? A lot of the design stuff now, I would say it's not completely flexible. We're trying to design multi-state systems with multiple discrete minima. And there, the design part is harder because there has to be multiple independent states. As far as designing intrinsically disordered proteins, it's very easy. That's what we call failed designs are basically intrinsically disordered. But we also have systems that are disordered, but then become ordered upon binding. One of the questions that this group is highlighting is speculating on where things might go in the next like five, 50, yeah. 30 years. And obviously there was like a very sort of specific connection that was asked there about this function. But do you have any, because I mean, just as far as I'm concerned, the sort of stuff you do is basically magic. 
as far as friends know, as I'm concerned. Patterning, I would say the overall goal is like really patterning matter at the atomic scale. So a lot of the, a lot of the nano, this, this principle of self-assembly, we're able to pattern things with these hexagonal lattices, nano cages, different point group symmetries. But if you want to pattern more extensively and asymmetrically, then I think that's where things like the motors come in, like the walkers, because you could now start moving things around. So I think that's probably, that's one way to think about, suppose you wanted to assemble a circ- an asymmetric circuit, then you're going to need something that can do work and that you can control. So I think that the general form of the answer to the question I would think about these systems that use chemical energy is actually pattern, patterning matter in, in highly directed ways at the atomic level. And so that's probably, would you agree that this is me now linking to the sole question, you'd, you'd say that was an area that you feel the, the community should focus on where there's maybe a lot of high value to be had from doing I, that. That's, in that well, way. that's certainly a very general form of the problem. And I, I don't know, I, I think it is hard to anticipate. I think that's the history of technology is either their technological revolutions and then people figure out what it's really good for after the fact. But yeah, we'd just be really happy to see a directionally spinning motor or a nice walker walking along the fiber right now. Yeah, absolutely. If there are no other questions, we've done fairly well for time, Alison. I suppose we can probably go to your... Yeah. Okay, David, we still have three minutes of you. If you don't mind, we just cascading questions out out to you and you just see which you get to. Okay, so is there a tool or an enabling technology or something that you really wish you had that would significantly advance your field? Where you're like, if someone listens to this in the engineering department, make me this, I want that. Yeah. Like I said, we're having a hell of a time characterizing these rotary machines. So measurement devices for measuring directed motion on the nanoscale, that's really a major limit right now. Okay. And if you could ask people in this group, what do you think is the number one question that people in this group should have an answer to, to drive progress in molecular machines? If you were in my position, what would you ask everyone here? What, well, I think, I think it is, a lot of it is measurement methods. Like I would say develop methods for quantifying the, the behavior of molecular machines, because to some extent you can't really design before you have measurements. So I, I think I would really urge sort of thinking about how we quantify the behavior of, of molecular machines as people start designing them. All right. Uh, thank you. And then we have one from William Shee still in the question. Can you measure rotary motion with a micro and length uh, lever attached to the rotor? Yeah, that's a really good question. And Let's see. So one way you could do that is if you made the arm really long, you could put a fluorescent group on the end and then you could watch it. That was what was done for the ATP synthase. And that is, we're basically playing around with engineering ways to do it. Yeah. So that's certainly a very good idea to, to basically, that's sort of transferring, that's transferring the length scale over what you need to measure, uh, amplifying it by basically going out to a larger circumference circle. Yeah. So I think that's a very good idea. Okay, and then two questions for one minute. One is, what would you recommend young uh, people in your fields uh, to focus on now and to do? And then the other one is, what can this group to help with your work? Is there anything we could do for you after you've gratefully given us an hour of your time? What do you need? I think it's a really simulated discussion. I think, again, if people have ideas about measurement methods, I think that would be really good. A question about what would you do with machines once you had them? I mean, at some point, this field is going to have to make an argument for why you need them. And I think your group is very well poised to that. So I think that will definitely help build enthusiasm for it. Because, of course, you need some kind of society buy-in to really do something like this. So I would say measurement methods, applications. And then I think 
One of the things I would recommend is to try and become a generalist because there's a lot of different things coming together here. There's the physics and engineering of measurement. There's the physical chemistry, biology of machine proteins and machines. There's the sort of the computer science of deep learning. So really trying to getting a broad view. There's so many different things converging in this field. That, that would be my suggestion. Don't become a specialist too early. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations. So please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah.